as Pastor is going through, and maybe you have some um, notes from Recap as well, just um, mark any questions, because you will have the opportunity to ask all your questions coming up later. All right, thank you. Thank you. So Recap did a lot of uh, groundwork for what I'm going to do, which is we're going to get into uh, some, some questions on uh, what has become a main question for apologetics now. Um, when I was younger, which was a while ago, uh, the, there were always questions of interpreting the Bible. How do you interpret this? How do you interpret that? But now the main line of struggle is what is the Bible anyway? How can we know that this is even the Bible? So we're going to look at a few things and then go into a couple of main questions as we do that. So I'm going to go very quickly through some of this. But what, what usually happens is that what comes down to popular culture follows from philosophy and then follows from university and the academy. And then eventually it ends up as a pop culture way of thinking. That's why philosophy is important. That's why Recap spent so much time on the idea of presuppositions because philosophy shows up in how we end up relating to truth and relating to one another. So skepticism around the Bible really uh, came in hard in the, uh, 18, in the 1800s, the 19th century, and really began to undercut uh, how can we know this is actually the Bible. And going back to the early part of that century, there was a German theologian named F.C. Bauer who began to question the authenticity of many of the books of the New Testament. And today, I'm going to focus on New Testament. Um, but he began to, to, to undermine the, and, and put out uh, papers and other scholarship that said that, for instance, John, John's gospel was written in the late second century, so closer to 200. Um, so obviously John didn't write it. And, and then most of scholarship, uh, because he was a very accomplished scholar, followed him. And so there were reams and reams and tons of information all built now on that presupposition that John was written uh, in, in the second century, late second century. Um, however, we found a, a manuscript 100 years after him uh, that dates back to 125 uh, AD. So we found out that all of that scholarship had to be thrown out because it was built on a bad foundation. That moves right into theological liberalism in the United States in the 1900s and then down to modern skepticism. So first of all, I I'm going to interact with some modern skeptics and authors who are extremely influ influential. Um, Recab had uh, information from a Muslim scholar. Muslim scholars and atheists today get most of their biblical information from this particular Bible scholar named Bart Ehrman, who went to Moody Bible Institute um, as an evangelical, went to Princeton Seminary, got his master's and his PhD there. In the course of his studies, he became an agnostic and then I believe an atheist. So. Uh, in the course of his studies. But this is, this is the, the train of thought about 
the Bible that he puts out in his popular writings. He says, what do you suppose happened to the stories about Jesus over the years as they were told and retold, not as disinterested news stories reported by eyewitnesses, but as propaganda meant to convert people to faith, told by people who had themselves heard them from 5th or 6th or 19th hand. Do you or your kids ever play the telephone game at a birthday party? You know the telephone game. You tell the story. It goes around, and eventually what you hear at the end has no, uh, no bearing on what was said at the beginning. This is the way that uh, many modern skeptics view the transmission of the biblical text. Now, if he was being intellectually honest, he would know that that, that, that is really leading people in the wrong way. And we'll see that at times, actually, he has to come out and be honest about some things, but seems to be difficult at times for him. So let's look at some of the ideas of modern skeptics. Okay, so these, these are some of the questions that you deal with when it comes to what is this Bible? Well, first of all, we don't have the originals. We don't have the handwritten page that John wrote or that, that Paul wrote or that Peter wrote. We don't have that. They're correct. We don't have those original documents. That's correct. Their second thing is they'll say the texts were tampered with. In other words, they, they were dealt with in a way in order to purposefully dis distort what they say and to promote one doctrine and not other doctrines that they don't like. We'll look at some specific ways in which they say that. And then, how come some of the books were left out? There's more books than that, right? Has anyone ever heard these questions? Right? There's more books. What about the Gospel of Thomas? What, what about the Acts of John? What about these other books? How come they put some in and didn't let others in? What were they trying to protect? What were they trying to do? So looking at that from a skeptical viewpoint. And then lastly, this is a basic assumption. It seems to make sense. The farther we get away from the originals, we're, we're almost 2,000 years away from when this thing was written, it makes sense that we can be less and less sure about what they actually wrote. So th these are the lines of argument. These are the questions we'll be dealing with. So what I'm going to do, I think, is fairly straightforward, if not always totally simple. But first of all, we want to understand the idea of New Testament canon. We'll talk about what we mean by canon, but how did we end up with these 27 books? Why not 30? Why not 23? How did we end up with this? Then, then we want to look at how textual criticism works, because Recap already told you there's over 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Actually, there's over 5,800 now, and we're finding more and more every year. Um, so there's all these different manuscripts along with 20,000 other manuscripts in different languages, 20,000 plus, and we're comparing them and there are differences. Someone wants to hear there's no differences between any manuscript. That's not true. There are differences in the manuscripts. So we have to figure out what, what represents the original and what is a change to the original. That is the idea of textual criticism. And then last, 
kind of as an example of this whole apologetic and the approach uh, of dealing with a critical scholarship and skepticism, we'll look a little bit at the, the divinity of Jesus based on some of their arguments and based on what we actually see. So first of all, let's get to what is the canon. First of all, it's, it's simply a transliteration of a Greek term, which means a rule or a standard. So when you hear the term, the canon of scripture, this is the final rule of what we have come to know as the scripture, canon. So here's a skeptic, and he writes about the Da Vinci Code. Did anyone ever see the Da Vinci Code? I never saw it. One day I, I probably should, just to get really, really mad and angry. <laughs> but he says, eventually four gospels and 23 other books were canonized, declared to be holy scripture into a Bible. This did not occur, however, until the 6th century. Now, he writes that as if somehow magically in the 6th century, nobody had any idea what the Bible was. And in the 6th century, they said, you know what? I got a good way to do this. We'll say these books are the Bible, and the rest of these aren't because we want people to believe this way and not that way. That's kind of the way that it's presented there. But now let's look at the process of the canon of scripture as it actually occurred. Actually, we could go back further than what I put in here because even in the books of the Bible, in the New Testament, Peter talks about Paul's writings as being scripture. So even during the time when scripture was still being written, it's talking about other books that had just been written hot off the press of Paul's pen as being scripture itself already. But we see at the very beginning of the second century, uh, a church father named Papias, he lists already the four gospels, not five gospels, not six gospels, not a bunch of other gospels, and we see that consistently. It never changes, it never wavers until sometime in the 1980s when they want to include the Gospel of Thomas as being more reliable than these four gospels. We'll look at the Gospel of Thomas today and see if you agree with those scholars. So then uh, there are, even in the second century, in the, in the generation and the couple generations right after the scripture is written, <coughs> we have really 20 or 21 undisputed books almost from the get-go. And you see what they are there. You could add at the beginning the book of Revelation because early on that was accepted. There was a time then where there was some controversy about the book of Revelation. But early on, the four gospels, the book of Acts, all of Paul's letters, 1 John and 1 Peter, were at the very beginnings of the second century and through the second century uh, seen as authoritative scripture on par with the Old Testament writings. There was not controversy over these writings from the beginning. Now, there were some books in which we saw some dispute. Some parts of the church saw them as scripture. Some were not sure whether or not they were scripture. You see the books there, Hebrews, James, 2nd uh, Peter, 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. So there was a process of time as the church uh, looked at uh, these various books, and then there were other books. 
that were sometimes spoken of, and they were wondering, is this scripture? Shepherd of Hermes, Apocalypse, Apocalypse of Peter, Epistle of Barnabas, Episcopal of, of Clement, and the Didache. Each of these books was actually written in the second century, um, not in the first century. And so we'll look at the criteria for canon. This is important. Um, how do we know that a book is actual, actually an authoritative uh, a book that it comes to us from God and gives us the rule of faith? There were three primary, primary criteria. First is apostolicity or antiquity. That is, it was either written by an apostle or it was written by someone closely associated with an apostle. So, for example, the Gospel of Mark, Mark is never called an apostle. But we see even from the earliest writings of the church fathers that he was closely associated with Peter. We see the same thing with Luke. Luke was not called an apostle, but he was closely associated with Paul. Um, so we see that for just about, well, for every writing in the New Testament, except for one, where we're still not sure who the author is. Does anyone know what one book that is? The book of Hebrews. Early on, many thought it was Paul, but then there be, became disputes, and the, the early church did not uh, just decide, well, we've got to have an apostle's name on this, so let's go with Paul. As a matter of fact, if you look at the history of the transmission of the four Gospels, none of those Gospels has a name attached to it in the Gospel itself. Mark doesn't say, this was written by Mark. John, doesn't, John comes the closest to doing something like that towards the end of his Gospel, talking about being the beloved disciple. Uh, but none of the other Gospels says, this is from Matthew. Um, but early on in the history of the church, in the generation immediately after uh, the, the apostles died, you see these names attached uh, to each of the Gospels. They didn't put their names on it. And that's interesting when we see all of these other Gospels, they did put their names on it. This is the Gospel of Peter. This is the Gospel of Barnabas. This is the Gospel of Thomas Didymus. Um, they're putting their names on it. The gospel writers never did that. But apostolicity or antiquity. Secondly, orthodoxy. Does it conform to true doctrine? Or are they talking about crazy stuff that doesn't have anything that looks like what we've seen in Scripture in the Old Testament or what we know to be Scripture even in these newer writings? And thirdly, Catholicity, let me say that word, that's a hard one for me to say, Catholicity or universality. In other words, Catholicity means it is accepted by the whole of the church, not just in one church over here or one church over there, but this writing is accepted throughout uh, the church in all of these different places where the church exists. So that is, that was a criteria. But I want, I want to look at what does it mean 
to, to come up with canon because there's two very different views and it's important that we understand the difference on these views. First of all, Roman Catholicism looks at it this way. The canon is an authoritative, the canon is an authoritative list of books. It's an authoritative list. From Protestant theology, we have the idea that canon is a list of authoritative books. Do you see the difference between those two? It's an important difference. Because in the first instance, the canon is an authoritative list. What's authoritative is the list. Who decided on that list? So in other words, there's something that's more authoritative than the books themselves. Someone came up with the list. Who was that? It was the church. So the church has authority over what is or is not scripture. That's a Roman Catholic view of canon. But a Protestant view, the view to which we hold, is that the church does not determine what's the Bible and what's not the Bible. It is the very scripture itself. It is the word that God has given to his church, which is authoritative. So the books themselves are authoritative. The canon is a list of authoritative books. So we have recognized as the church that which God has given us as a rule of faith and practice that points back to Jesus and points back to God. So the early church did not determine the canon. It discovered the canon with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's important to understand. So here's a quote from a guy named Bruce Metzger who was one of the greatest New Testament scholars uh, as spe specifically on dealing with manuscripts of the New Testament in the 20th century. He says the church did not create the canon but came to recognize, accept, affirm, and confirm the self-authenticating quality of certain documents that imposed themselves upon the church. In other words, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, uh, the church recognized the reality that certain books were set apart by God from the hand of apostles and, and those closely associated with them uh, that were written just in the generation immediately after Jesus that we have recognized as the church by the direction of the Holy Spirit that this is Holy Scripture. So that is how we understand how did we get to these final 27 books. So now let's look at right now among scholarship, there's the idea, and you'll see it a lot, that in the early church, they didn't mind forged documents at all. You could put one person's name on it, uh, knowing that it was, wasn't written by that person, and people would think, that's cool, I know what he means. He thinks like John. He thinks like Peter, so we can call it that. But, but the reality is this, whenever the early church noticed that a document was forged, that it had someone's name on it, particularly to give it prestige, so it had the name of an apostle on it or or someone else that they knew that it wasn't them they immediately got rid of that document they wanted nothing to do with that document so we certainly do see documents that 
uh, are, are like that. We'll look at a couple of them in just a minute. But even Bart Ehrman, who wrote a book, basically saying that the, the, the names that we've come to ascribe on our New Testament, uh, they weren't really written by those people. That's his basic thesis. Um, but even he admits that in the early church, if they thought that, they would have thrown the book out immediately. Okay? So even so, we, we use the word uh, pseudepigrapha, which means writing as a pseudonym, writing in the name of someone else. If the early church saw that, they would throw that out almost immediately. So we even have letters that, in terms of their content, in terms of what's in them, they are completely orthodox in line with the rest of Scripture. The epistle to the Laodiceans, 3 Corinthians, the epistle of Barnabas. But as the church looked at these documents in the second century, they recognized and realized that they were all written in the second century. And for example, the writer of uh, the epistle to the Laodiceans. Now, you know, Paul wrote to Colossae, Laodiceans were about 12 miles away from Colossae. They were closely in contact with one another. In the book of Colossians, Paul says, take this book as well and read it in the church of the Laodiceans. So you see this uh, close association between these two churches, geographically and otherwise. And so the man that wrote Laodiceans uh, loved Paul. And he put together a lot of information from Paul's other letters. He wrapped it up real nice, said this is from Paul. But when he was discovered, he actually got excommunicated from the church. Because even though everything in there was scripturally right, it was orthodox, they couldn't deal with this forgery. So that's the way they dealt with forgeries in that day. Now, today, critical scholarships, if you ever read uh, in a commentary or other places, you're always going to hear all, uh, and even if you have your NIV study Bible or another good study Bible, it will talk about some of the controversies around authorship. And in most cases, that is still an attempt to push back the writing of Scripture away from the time when uh, we see it was written. And so in all of these cases, we see that the early church recognized them early on and there's good reason to believe that that was correct. I want to read to you a, a couple of things. I'm not going to go through all of these from uh, the Gospel of Thomas and a couple of other places. Matter of fact, I'm going to skip that one, crazy as it is. And let, let's go to this one. So this is in the Gospel of Thomas, uh, a story about Jesus. So just read it. After that, again, he went through the village. And as a child ran and dashed against his shoulder... So somebody ran into Jesus and Jesus was provoked and said to him, you shall not finish your course or go all the way. And immediately the boy fell down and died. But certain people, when they saw what was done, said, where was this young child born? For every word of his, every word of his, every, every word of his is an accomplished work. In other words, when he says something, it just happens. That's a dangerous dude. And the parents of the dead boy came to Joseph and blamed him, saying, you, have, you that have such a child cannot dwell with us in the village, or teach him to bless and to curse, for he's killing our children. 
that's not the little boy Jesus. I hope that's not in the Young Messiah movie coming out, you know. I don't know what's going to be in that movie. I don't know what it's based on. But, but this, is, this is not the Gospel of Thomas, but this is another document called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. And you see these types of stories over and over again. Now, the Gospel of Thomas is the most controversial one because it has uh, critical scholarship wants to say there are five Gospels. And the fifth Gospel is the Gospel of Thomas. Um, so it's highly promoted. How many people have heard of the Jesus Seminar? Have you heard of the Jesus Seminar? Okay, it was a very important move in the 1980s into the 1990s and they're still publishing things from the Jesus Seminar. They would gather these scholars together and they would give them beads of different colors. A red bead meant this is something Jesus definitely said. So they looked at all the Gospels. Pink me means he might not have said it, but he might have said something like it. He might have meant that, but he didn't say it. Black, uh, gray meant I don't think he said it, and black meant there's no way Jesus ever said anything like that. When you look at what they produced, and they have put out uh, the four Gospels, actually they put out the five Gospels. When you look at what is in red or pink, what you have is Jesus as a wise man, as a philosopher, not as a miracle worker, certainly not as one claiming deity. They, they gutted the Gospels of any claims of Jesus to be anything more than a wise man. The question becomes, then why in the world did they want to kill him so bad? There's no resurrection. He, he, he was killed, he was crucified, but not as an insurrectionist, but just as a rabble rouser. Really? You, you crucified him for that? Um, so it doesn't have the ring of truth, but there's no narratives in the Gospel of Thomas. There's no miracles, no resurrection, just sayings of Jesus and discussions. So the Jesus seminars voted on those, and they voted that this Gospel had, had more authentic sayings of Jesus than any other gospel except for, I believe, Luke. So more than Matthew, Mark, or John, this is more authentic than those other gospels. Let's look at some of the things it says in this gospel. So it's actually 114 sayings of Jesus. That is the gospel of Thomas. Number seven says, lucky is the lion that the human will eat so that the lion becomes human and foul is the human that the lion will eat and the lion will still become human. Really? Seriously? The disciples said to Jesus in verse 12, we know that you're going to leave us. Who will be our leader? Jesus said to them, no matter where you are, you are to go to James the just for whose sake heaven and earth came into being. Really? Okay. Now this one is, is really interesting. I'm going to pass this one. I want to go to this one. This is the one I want to go to. This is the last saying. Simon Peter said to them, make Mary leave us for females don't deserve life. Jesus said, Jesus is going to rebuke her, re rebuke him. Look, I'll, I will guide her to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. 
For every female, praise God, who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. The gospel of Thomas. Why isn't that in the Bible? Just tell them. What are some good reasons it's not in the Bible? Gospel of Thomas. I'm going to look at one more and then we're going to go on to the next part. But the Acts of John, uh, which is, a, again, a second century document. It's a Gnostic document. The Gnostics believed that anything of the flesh was evil. They just believed that everything should be spirit. And so it promoted one of the early heresies in the church, which was called docetism, from a Greek word dokeo, which means to appear as. So they believed that Jesus really didn't have a human body. He just appeared to have a human body. And so this is one of the documents from Gnostics, but it's called the Acts of John. So John is saying, sometimes when I meant to touch him, I met with material in a solid body, but at other times when I felt him, his substance was immaterial and incorporeal as if he did not exist at all. And I often wished to walk as I walked with him to see his footprint, whether it appeared on the ground, for I saw him as it were raised up from the earth, and I never saw it. So most of you have footprints, that little thing on your wall somewhere at home, in your dorm room somewhere. You got to get rid of it because according to this, Jesus didn't have any footprints. He was walking around kind of like a ghost, a little bit above the ground. He didn't really have a body. That is what a great deal of this second century material has in it. Things that have no ring of truth or authenticity and some of the other things that uh, were talked about by uh, recap. So now I want to go on to this question of establishing what actually is the text of the New Testament. I want to try to do that in about 10 minutes. Jesus help me. So uh, first of all, a definition of uh, textual criticism. It's the study of the copies of any written document whose originals are unknown or non-existent in order to determine the exact wording of the original. So when we have all of these documents and they have differences, how do we determine what the original said? Why is that so important? Let me just share a real quick story. Dan Wallace, who's probably the greatest New Testament scholar on the manuscripts right now, and he is the one who is over the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. Um, incredible. He was one of Pastor East teachers at Dallas Seminary, but he, he relates this story of a 12th century monk named Andrew. And so Andrew was just out of monk school, and he's placed into uh, uh, a, a, a place where, you know, all the monks are. What would you call that, where the monks go? Yeah, he goes to the monastery. Thank you. So Andrew's brand new in the monastery, and they know that Andrew has issues. Andrew doesn't like to be around people. Andrew just likes to be around the text. He's very anal retentive. He's very exacting. He's not very personable. So when he gets there, he, uh, the abbot says, I got just the job for you, Andrew. I want you to go and I want you to copy some of the texts that talk about the rules of the seminary, uh, of the monastery. So he goes away. He comes back in about 45 minutes. He knocks on the door and he says to the abbot, he says, Father, because that's what they call them. He says, Father, um, there's a problem with the manuscripts. 
there is an inconsistency. Do you have some older ones? And so the abbot says, we usually don't do this, but I can see that you are very, very uh, exacting, and, and that's exactly what we want in this job. So he sends him to another room that has older manuscripts. 45 minutes later, Andrew comes back, knocks on the door, uh, and says, again, Father, there is a discrepancy in the manuscripts. Can you send me to the oldest ones? I need to get rid of this discrepancy. And, and uh, the, the, the abbot is impressed by the fact that he is so into this thing, he won't let anything drop to the ground. And so he says, I'm going to send you somewhere where we haven't sent anyone for hundreds of years. And you're going to go into the lowest part, into the abyss of this monastery, into a room that no one's been in for all these years. And I'm going to give you access, I've never done this before, to the oldest scrolls that we have. And so he, he sends him down there. He goes down there. Ten minutes later, it's not a knock on the door, but it's like 50 people slamming on the door saying, Holy Father, Holy Father, Andrew has gone nuts. He's gone absolutely berserk. He's yelling. He's screaming. He's banging his head on the wall. And so they all run down there to find out what in the world is going on with Andrew. And so they knock on the door and Andrew, Andrew, are you okay? What's wrong? He said, there should have been an R. Where is the R? And then the abbot and they're like, he really is crazy. What is wrong with him? And then he yells out, the word is celebrate. Nobody got it. The word is celebrate. One letter can make a big difference. Andrew didn't know what he was going in, getting into at the monastery. Tell somebody else on the way home what, what that meant. You tell somebody else on the way home. So in the New Testament, we talk about textual variance. That's any difference between two manuscripts. Now, we already saw we have over 20,000 manuscripts. We have hundreds of thousands of quotes of uh, the, the early church fathers on the New Testament. Uh, hundreds of thousands of quotes. Actually, there's 138,162 words in the New Testament text as we have it established. It's a lot of words. But my goodness, now look at how many variants are there. How many differences with all these manuscripts? The Muslims want to say there's never any difference. We, we have to honestly look at all of this information and say there's a lot of differences. Perhaps three to four, four hundred thousand in all of these New Testament documents. Does that shock anybody? Well, let's just pray and we'll, we'll leave right now, okay? No, we're not going to do that. We're going to look at the rest of the story. Why are there so many? First of all, there's so many manuscripts that we have. If you took... The number of manuscripts of the New Testament, because the average New Testament manuscript, you think of, a lot of times people think of these little pieces of parchment. Some of them are that. They're just a few verses. But the average New Testament manuscript is 450 pages. If you took uh, the average of uh, uh, the other authors, the Greek and Roman authors that uh, Recab was talking about, and you stacked up on average there's less than 20 uh, existing documents from them. If you stack them up, they might be about four feet high. If you stacked up the manuscripts that we have of the Bible, it wouldn't be four feet high. 
It wouldn't be 100 feet high. It wouldn't be 1,000 feet high. It'd be over a mile high. 6,600 feet, somebody calculated it, I don't know how. But that's a lot of stuff to go through. So we have uh, what Wallace calls an embarrassment of riches uh, when we look at New Testament manuscripts. If we say that Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great uh, were real people and that Plato and Aristotle, this is what they said. Uh, and we do say that, and there's good reason to say that. We should know a thousand, with a thousand more times precision of the historicity of the New Testament, of the Bible, because we just have that much more information. So another reason for variance is the Greek language, and we'll look at it for just a second, is very flexible. And then many things can qualify. Here's one way in which you have flexibility in, the, in Greek. So we, if we said John loves Mary, and I'll just go through this real quick, there's 97 different ways that you could say that in Greek. And have it have the exact same meaning because word order is flexible in Greek. You can put words in different orders because case endings are what determine what is the subject and what is the object in a Greek sentence, not the order that they're in. Also, the definite article, the, so in the example I have here, the second one, the John loves Mary. Would we ever say that? We never would. But in Greek, you could say the John loves Mary, the John loves the Mary. You could say this 97 different ways and come up with exactly the same meaning in Greek. So here are the types of variants. First of all, spelling differences and nonsense errors. That's most of them. The name John in Greek is Ioannes. Ioannes can be spelled sometimes with one and sometimes with two. Um, every time there's a difference in the manuscripts, that goes down as one of the variants. So we see that over and over again. That, is, that accounts for most of those variants. Now, when the skeptics will hit you with this, they'll act like all these variants change the meaning of the New Testament. It's not true. Well over 90% of them have absolutely no difference at all. And well over about probably 98 to 99% of them, actually more than that, have no meaningful difference whatsoever. So there's differences that don't affect translation at all. There are meaningful but not viable variants. What that means is, yes, this is a meaningful variant, but it's in one text. We've got 5,800 texts in the Greek and all these others, and it's never attested to anywhere else. Guess what? We know that even though that would make a meaningful difference, it's not viable. It's not even believable that that could actually be uh, in the, the, the text. So, And lastly, this is the ones that actually matter. They're meaningful and viable variants, less than 1% probably less than one-fourth of one percent. Um, I'm going to read this and go through something real quick, and I'll close. When Constantine commissioned new versions of the documents, it enabled the custodians of orthodoxy to revise, edit, and rewrite their material as they saw fit in accordance with their tenets. It was at this point that most of the crucial alterations of the New Testament were probably made and Jesus assumed the unique status he has enjoyed ever since. Of the 5,000 manuscripts, not one predates the fourth century. This is from a book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And it's simply not true. But this is 
critical scholarship. This is what's being put out there. We have at least 74 Greek manuscripts that predate the fourth century. We have thousands of second and third century quotes of church fathers quoting the New Testament. Ignatius says, for our God, Jesus the Christ, was conceived by Mary according to God's plan. That's in 110. Um, Polycarp, uh, who was an early bishop, that, that important part, he refers to Jesus as Lord and God, Jesus Christ. So, and then even going back and looking at the manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, uh, P means papyrus. That's a, that's a picture of papyrus number 66. It's from 175 to 225 AD, somewhere in there. It's 156 pages long, has just about the entire Gospel of John, including John 1.1. If you were here last week, you know what John 1.1 says, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It establishes the deity of Christ well before Constantine. So the idea that Scripture was changed at this late time in order for Roman power to do certain things uh, is simply not true. It doesn't line up with the evidence that we have. I'm just going to look at one more variant. This is the kind, these are some of the kind of variants you see. Most of them are not nearly as significant as this. Most of them are simply whether or not, for example, in I think it's Luke chapter 9, when it talks about sending out the 12. Uh, let me just talk about that one for a second. In Luke 9, it says Jesus sent out the 12. Some of the variants say he sent out 12 apostles or he sent out his apostles. So there are different ways, but it all means the same thing. He's sending out uh, the 12 to do mission. This one says this kind can only come out by prayer and a variant says in fasting. Right. So what does it say? We can look at the manuscript evidence and. I really like the idea that fasting wouldn't be included in there. If you look at me, you understand why. But, um, but as you look at the manuscript evidence, it's not hard to determine based on where the manuscripts are. It's not how many manuscripts, but it is looking at the actual manuscripts themselves. So the King James was based on seven Greek manuscripts. The earliest one was the 11th century. The ESV is based on over 5,700 manuscripts as early as the second century. So here's the reality. As we get farther away in time, we're getting closer and closer to knowing the exact wording of every phrase, every word in the New Testament. We're getting closer and closer to that. No significant doctrine in the New Testament that is called into question by the textual variants. Now, even Bart Ehrman in the in his book, if you ever read any of his stuff, Misquoting Jesus wants to tell you that you can't trust anything in your Bible. But in the appendix to that book, I don't know why they even put it in there. He says essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. In other words, there's no doctrine that would change based on these variants. When they give you this information, they're trying to tell you something else. So I'm going to go to the, the last point on there, and that will be it. When we hold our Bibles in our hands, we can declare with great certainty that what we hold is nothing less than the Word of God. I have up here a few Greek New Testaments. I have a Hebrew Bible as well. If you just want to look at it, if you have any questions on it, you can ask me questions on those. Um, Reggie, I think I'll just do your job right now and just say we're going to take a five-minute break 
and then we're gonna come back for our panel. Please come back quickly. So five minutes and then we'll go into our panel and have your questions ready.